0: Truth is all I have to give. Let us glance at an entirely different standpoint. We're a word from our sponsors. And actually, this is a word from our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> big sponsor. Yeah, the big sponsor in the sky. Exactly. The Platonic View of visible or phenomenal reality was that there is behind it an invisible and greater order of reality. Now when he says platonic he's not thinking about what you're thinking about when you're thinking platonic. Aren't you thinking about a platonic relationship? Yeah, well, he's not talking about a platonic relationship, which, of course, is a relationship where you are not involved in a love affair with a person and friends. It's a kind of straight up above the board brotherly love friend thing. Plato is the guy who, I guess, coined that whole thing. So it's that platonic view, a view that Plato had. The view that Plato had of visible or phenomenal reality was that there is behind it an invisible and greater order of reality. Plato has fallen on hard times these days. In our society now, in our culture now, Plato has fallen on hard times. He is no longer as respected, I should think, as he once was, which is understandable considering that we are materialists and the religion of science pretty much has, they look with a jaundiced eye at Plato and Platonic philosophy. But that's okay. We don't. And this is for us and not for them. So that's what we'll do. There is invisible form or figure, only mentally perceptible, over and above all form or figure that we can apprehend through our senses, according to Dr. Nickel. And according to me. But I'm nobody, and Plato was somebody, and fewer people are listening to Plato these days, and even fewer still are listening to Dr. Nickel, I have nothing really to add to what two people who were far superior to me in every way have already said, other than that's been my experience. And now it's up to you to decide for yourself whether you think there is invisible form or figure, only it's mentally perceptible, over and above all form or figure that we can apprehend through our senses. These invisible forms or figures with which our term idea came to be connected are prior in scale to and therefore much more real than any perceptible form or figure. If it comes before the perceptible form or figure in the phenomenal world, then clearly in scale it is higher than because it comes before. Just like your father and your mother are higher than you in scale because they come before you, and your grandparents are higher still because they come before them. Thus, the world of sense, all that we see, is a very limited expression of real form, and properly speaking, science studies that which is indicated in the visible object. Science probably wouldn't agree with this. I suspect that science might have a problem with the idea that there was anything prior to the visible object. As far as I can glean from the Big Bang Theory, for them, there wasn't anything else. All of a sudden, it just all bang, exploded into existence. And there wasn't anything prior, and there isn't anything higher. The highest is now what the dead matter has spawned. Dead matter spawned you and I and our little brains and our limited, finite, blind kind of intelligence And we are the highest because we look around us and like the Bible says (laughs) of God, God says, what gods? I don't see any other gods. I'm here. I'm looking around. I don't see any other gods. Where are your other gods? We're pretty much like that now. We're looking around and saying, well, what gods? I don't see any other gods. We're here. We're the gods of the universe. There There are no other gods. Mount Olympus is a joke and this is a joke and that's a joke and that's a fairy tale and that's all superstition. So we're it. We are the gods, and the scientists, the high priest, of course, are the high priests, the real gods. And we're just kind of like, the I don't know, I guess we should be the worshippers of the real gods. And I'm not one of the worshippers, so I should probably shut up before they come and take me away. Meaning, the real gods come and take me away. As if they would care, because as I've already pointed out, I'm not Dr. Nickel and I'm not Plato. I'm really no one at all. Why should anyone care about anything that I have to say, except you? And you care because I don't know why. Oh, right, I remember, you're brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> so the object of anything that can be called science in the strict sense of the word is something that may be indicated by the world of sense, clearly, because it only studies that which is indicated in the visible object. If there's no visible object, if there's not something that you can weigh and measure empirically, then it doesn't exist. So therefore, according to science in the strictest sense, therefore there isn't anything else. If it can't be indicated by the world of sense, it's not really of that world, but of a higher degree of reality. Our perspective is that just because it can't be measured, just because it can't be weighed, does not mean it doesn't exist. It only means it's not part of that world, the world that the senses know about. I think there are scientists who will, to some extent, they're a little broader-minded. They'll allow that there are some things that are in the sense world that cause other things that are in the sense world that they just haven't discovered yet. I'm not sure they allow that there could be something that's not from the sense world, but at least they will allow that they don't know everything in the sense world, or they haven't discovered everything in the sense world yet. And they have a little bit broader idea of what that might be. For example, the subatomic particles that they didn't know existed before, and now they do know that they exist. They have to allow for that. The geometer, for example, studies triangles and finds that the three interior angles of any sort of triangle are always equal in sum to two right angles. But this is not true of any triangle that we can perceive with the external senses because it is not possible to draw an absolutely exact triangle. So that triangle itself belongs to a higher degree of reality than any visible representation of it. The idea of triangle is more perfect than any triangle that we can bring into existence in the sense world. So the triangle as idea, the ideal triangle, doesn't exist in passing time and space. It's not visible, but it's only apprehended by the mind. It's like perfect equations that can be worked out in the mind, but really can't be worked out in time and space. A scientist would understand that because they're constantly working these equations to try and discover what is something, how something came about, or some law. They're trying to get behind it and find out how it operates. They're not trying to get behind it to find out where it came from, because they already know where it came from. It evolved out of the Big Bang. It just evolved like we did like reason did, like intelligence did, like light did, like everything did. In a similar way, anything that has the semblance of beauty, relation and proportion in the visible world, as seen by us with our organs of sight, has behind it beauty, relation and proportion belonging to a higher degree of reality, which art strives towards. And of which we may catch glimpses in flashes of consciousness above the ordinary. Now, for people who don't have flashes of consciousness above the ordinary, (laughs) this is just balderdash. This is nonsense. For people who will not allow that a flash of consciousness above the ordinary is anything other than a fevered brain, or imagination, or fancy, or a psychosis, this is crazy. But... Before those people had the upper hand in the world, this was the way people thought. And now we have progressed beyond that superstitious nonsense, and now we will only believe what we can see and smell and taste. and We only believe what the five senses tell us. Now when you think about that, you should be very afraid. Living in a world where people deliberately put their inner eye out and depend entirely on the five senses, It's pretty crazy. It's like saying, well, if I didn't have some kind of machine that could detect the radiation of light beyond, on either side of the spectrum that our visible eyes can see, I would have to say it didn't exist. But since I do have a machine that detects it, and I believe the machine, it does exist. Now, I think that's kind of frightening, because that means that anything that my machine can't detect doesn't exist unless I have some kind of a theory that I'm going to build a machine to prove. Do you see what I'm saying, how this works? It works backward. You don't work from the idea, but in a sense you're working from the idea, but the idea is rooted in the senses. That you're going to prove. That you're going to prove, yes, it's a theory. You have this theory that it exists because, well, for example, they'll look out into space and they'll say, well, I have this theory that there's something there even though we can't see it. And the theory is based on the fact that there is this phenomena that occurs that looks like something that is closer to us, and we have discovered when that phenomenon occurs, it means that something made it happen, something caused it, and that something is usually this. So then I theorize that there is a this there that we can't now see. But until we can see it, it's just a theory, or until we can prove it. There you have it, materialism. But for materialism, a higher degree of reality is not countenanced. A materialist cannot say that there can be a higher form of reality because they're materialist. So if it's not material, it doesn't exist. I think it would be absolutely inexplicable on the basis upon which materialism rests. There may be a below, but there cannot be an above. There can be no existing higher degree of reality. Now understand that he is extrapolating this out to its natural conclusion. Now I doubt there are very many strict materialists, when you put it this way, because it sounds pretty absurd. And yet, there are a tremendous number of strict materialists. It's just crazy to them. So, Richard Dawkins is pretty much one of them. He's one of those scientist guys, and he's just on this rampage against religion. And (laughs) I guess I've talked about him before. I read a book that he wrote, because I think that we should not always be saying yes to ourselves. That sometimes we should deliberately say no to ourselves. Sometimes we should deliberately take the opposite point of view and try and prove it. In other words, we really need to challenge ourselves. Don't always say yes to everything you think. In fact, (laughs) you should rarely say yes to everything you think. Now, some of you already know that. Some of you know that the thing that is saying I think is the false personality. And to say yes to that all the time is, in my personal opinion, insanity. It is literally insanity because you are not in touch with reality. You're in touch with some thing that imagination and the world and circumstances and other people have invented. Because the false personality is an invented being. There is no such thing in reality. What is real of it is not false. So therefore, it's not part of that invented thing. What is real of you is not false. So if there is some part of you that is being reflected in the false personality and it's not false, then that is not part of the false personality. That is some of your essential self, some of your individuality shining through the false personality. So the false personality is using it and obscuring it to some degree, but it is not part of the false personality. So to trust this false thing as real is actually insanity. From my perspective, I think I've proved that sufficiently if you will consider that if you don't know what's real, they put you places where they put people who are mentally disturbed to try and cure them of their belief in something that's not real. If you think, for example, that you're George Washington, and you or you think you're George Washington, and you don't have the sexual organs for that, and if you think you're a Cleopatra, and you don't have the sexual organs for that, and you go about behaving as if you were and you will not yield in any way to anything that a doctor or someone in authority says about that and you continue to act like that, then somebody's going to have you committed and they're going to try and cure you somehow of your delusion because you're not George Washington and you're not Cleopatra. And if you insist that you are, we have ways of dealing with you. (laughs) My apologies to the Germanic peoples, and I didn't mean anything by it, so please don't bother writing because I don't answer emails, especially those kind. There can be no existing higher degree of reality. There can be no superior order behind the phenomenal world, nothing prior to it in scale. For the universe must be a mindless product, and body must be prior to mind. So if the universe is a mindless product, and body must be prior to mind... There can be no thought without phosphorus. Matter must be prior to function and use and sensation prior to meaning. So you don't know what something means until you have the sensation that tells you what it means. This just flies in the face of everything that you know as real because you sat for 10 days, 10 hours a day doing Vipassana where you got beyond your senses and you realized that senses did not have to give meaning to the sensations. That you could find meaning beyond what your senses told you. That you could turn pain into something entirely different. You could remove the meaning of pain as pain and assign a new meaning to it or a different meaning to it as a sensation. Not one kind of sensation or another kind of sensation, but as a sensation. And actually, in your consciousness, experience that sensation as something other than pain. Of course, some people would say, you need to be locked up. And then other people would say, lock me up there too, please, because I would like to do that. And then they would go to a 10-day Vipassana thing and learn how to do that and probably wouldn't learn it in the 10 days. It may take them a couple of times to do it because it took us a couple of times to do it. Or at least it took me a couple of times to do it. I think I experienced it the first time, but I'm not sure. I know I did the fourth time. I remember that distinctly. They called it Banga. You remember that? where you just all of a sudden kind of melted into light. To say that, of course, to somebody who is strictly materialistic, would say, well, you're crazy. Okay, you know, I'm crazy and there are thousands of other crazy people and there have been crazies who have existed for a long time and before you were around, Mr. Materialist, to judge them, they were sages and prophets and enlightened beings who transcended the physical. Which, of course, you're saying can't happen. But they say it did, and I say it did, and you say it did, and can, and does. It is possible. And it can be proved to anyone willing to do what needs to be done. Which is why we're here. To prove, by doing what needs to be done, that there is something higher and beyond this, basically, pretty meaningless in and of itself, world. To admit a higher order of reality behind known reality is, in fact... To reverse the direction of materialism. This is why a materialist will not do it. It is to reverse the direction of materialism. And that is not going to happen. That's not what they're trying to prove. For it's to affirm by an act of the mind what the senses by themselves do not directly show. But what, at the same time, the senses really indicate. Now, in a sense, this... uh, I have to be fair here. I want to be fair here. I don't have to be, but I want to be fair. In a sense, this is what astronomers are doing when they're looking out there and they're seeing the traces of something that they can't see. And their mind is saying, there's something behind what I can see. So, to a degree, they can do that. But it only goes so far. It's limited, sadly. So, there's something that their senses indicate. And their mind says, there's something there even though I can't see what it is. It is exactly in this that Plato puts the turning point of a man's soul, in this recognition of an existing higher order of reality that explains this obviously imperfect, suggestive world in which we live. And this is the turning point, not just for Plato, but for us as well. If you come to terms with, if you come to the idea that there must be something beyond what we can see, there must be something higher, You have reached that turning point. And if that nags you, and if you go after trying to find what it is, then you have turned the corner. Whether you'll go down the road very far or not, I don't know. But you have turned the corner. And if it keeps on nagging you, you're not ever really going to be happy and content until you find something that begins to answer that, or that begins to make some, this is a horrible thing to say, some sense of that. But you have to make some sense of that to yourself, even though we're not talking about the physical senses. It has to make some kind of reasonable impression on your mind, on your emotional and intellectual and even instinctive centers. I think it has to make some kind of impression there for you to follow it. If the universe be in man as a scale of reality, as well as man in the universe then if a man gives an inferior explanation of the universe, it will react on himself. He will limit himself and remain inferior to his own potential being. This is pretty clear. If you refuse to admit that flight, aerodynamic flight, is possible, then you have limited yourself. You're not going to be able to discover aerodynamic flight. It's just the way it is. You have to admit the possibility before you can expand into the potential. He has then left nothing else to do but to study a dead material world outside him, out of which his own life and his mind accidentally come. If there be energies in us capable of seeking another direction, if there is something in us that is reliable, trustworthy, that is not a machine, something in us that makes us capable of seeking this other direction, they will then necessarily find no goal if they don't have that. If there be energies in us capable of seeking another direction, they will then necessarily find no goal. For if there be things of the spirit, if there be higher degrees of consciousness and realness within, then all those impulses which in their right development should separate man from the tyranny of outer life. And trust me, when you begin to see outer life, you see that there is tyrannical. What else can you say? You are not the master of your destiny. So you can say you are as much as you want, but that is proved to be a lie every single day in millions and millions of lives. And create inner independence of soul through the realization of these higher degrees within. This is a difficult sentence, so I'm going to go over it again. For if there be things of the Spirit, if there be higher degrees of consciousness and realness within then all those impulses which in their right development should separate man from the tyranny of outer life and create inner independence of soul through the realization of these higher degrees within will become fused with the things of outer life into one common outer influence. For having no inner goal, their goal will seem to lie outside him. Essentially what he's saying is, you give all of this to a scientist. If there be energies in us capable of seeking another direction, the scientist or the materialist, they will then necessarily find no goal because they don't believe that it's possible. So if someone shows them a bird flying, says, flight is possible, then he says, okay, but it's not possible for man, so what? What's the goal? See, no goal, so no potential. The hypnotic power of outer life will then be increased. The outer will then tend to be felt fanatically, that is, religiously. And as I have said before, science is a religion. And the scientists are the high priest of that religion. And it's a very lucrative religion because they don't have to depend on your donations. They depend on taxes, grants, scientific grants, so on and so forth. And it is the wealthiest, the biggest and the wealthiest religion in the world. But as long as they're not calling it a religion, and as long as they don't have to get a tax deferral from the IRS, then they can just continue being what they are without ever being labeled as what they are. It may sound like I'm against the religion of science, which I am not. I think that science has its place. I think religion has its place. And I think that the two overlap one another in different areas, although both of them seem unwilling to admit that which I find to be somewhat absurd. But there it is. That's neither here nor there for me because I allow them to coexist and overlap and I don't have any problem with either one of them as far as they go. I don't have a problem with a car as far as it goes. As long as it stays off the sidewalk out of the house, I'm fine with it. As long as they don't run up on the sidewalk and run people over, I'm okay with it. As long as they don't go excessively fast in an area where it's unsafe and endanger the lives of people or endanger lives, endanger life, I'm okay with them. But when they get beyond that, then I think there needs to be a limit. I think that something needs to restrain those activities. That's me. That's perhaps why in this age of materialism, men seem doomed to sacrifice themselves more and more to mass organizations, to war, to machines, to speed, to giantism and ugliness of every kind, in order to get emotional satisfaction. What do you do if you don't have any kind of inner life? If your life is only outer? Well, you do drugs. You do adrenaline. You do crazy things to get you to feel something more. Because let's face it, you start whatever it is, and it's consuming. You can't get the inner filled by the outer, so you have to increase the activity of the outer and amp it up more and more, trying to get the inner filled. Seen from this angle, the attitude of scientific materialism really increases man's inner weakness, which is always too great. Our inner weakness is always too great. Bro, how can you say that? Very easily. I understand my own inner weakness. I understand my weakness of will. I understand your weakness of will. I watch people every day know better and act worse because of this inner weakness that is always too great. Too great for what? Too great for them to know and act the same. To know what's right and to do what's right. And yet, everyone who does what's wrong knows what's wrong, yet they have no power over themselves to stop doing it. Or not enough power over themselves. In other words, the inner weakness is too great. In all that belongs to himself, in all that is necessary for the dawn of individuality, it renders him more and more impotent, giving him the illusion that he can gain absolute power over a dead material world. And you have to admit, this is where we are today. Well, we just need a bigger bomber. We just need more drones. We need more guns. We need more. We have to stop the Taliban. We have to stop the terrorists. And we need more of this and more of that. And we need more information. And we need we need more of your freedom limited so that we can combat this. And if we could just get more, then we can conquer it. It's not going to work. It never has worked, and it never will work. And the reason it won't work is because that's not the problem. That's the wrong end of the telescope to be looking in. If you want things that are far away to look closer, you need to look in the other end of the telescope. But if you won't admit that there is a way of looking in the other end of the telescope, where there's anything to see when you do look there, then it's pointless. You have to come to something, and that's Plato's turning point where you will admit the possibility of something higher. And we are so full of pride and vanity that it's very difficult for us to admit the possibility of something higher than us. Very difficult. You may be able to admit it, but I don't think you could live with it. You know, We can acquiesce. Oh, yes, of course. Theoretically, we acquiesce. Oh, yes, of course. There may be smarter men than me. There may be wiser people than I. will admit the possibility, but then if someone tries to correct us, we show beyond any doubt that we don't really believe it. We are offended at being corrected. So, what is that about? Nichols says, what paradox could be stranger? Well, I could, I could probably think of a couple. The emotional attitude belonging to materialism is necessarily quite different from that belonging to idealism. Idealism, remember, is the belief in ideas as coming prior to things. As materialists will think, we can lay bare the secrets of nature. And as often as not, we assume the credit of being the actual creators of whatever processes we have discovered. You have to admit we do. We put our names on the asteroids. We like to name them as if they somehow belong to us because we discovered them. That's my discovery. That's my planet. That's my theory. And when you think about the identification and the pride and the vanity that goes with that, to say nothing of the money behind it. If it's your theory and you discovered it, you could get a lot of money. You can get a lot of money from grants, foundations. So it's the way the game's played. <laughs> it's extraordinary how a very superficial descriptive explanation satisfies us that we know. The sun isn't really coming up. The earth is turning on its axis. Oh, now I know that. You're not really all that can be seen. There is more of you. Oh, okay, now I know that nothing changes. Because the truth is, we don't really know that. And we still watch the sunrise and the sunset. We actually still call it that. For example, by chemical analysis, we can find out the quantitative composition of a substance. Vegetation is obviously green-blooded. Chlorophyll is its most important constituent. Man has red blood. And hemoglobin is its chief element. We can find by chemical analysis that their structure is rather similar and that each contains so many atoms of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, etc. We tend, then, to assume that we have discovered that they are by discovering the quantity and kind of elementary constituent bricks in these substances. Because we can see water, for example, is two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. Because we can see that, we've discovered that it exists. But their use and the idea behind these substances belong to quite a different order of thinking. And this is what, as materialists, we tend to ignore. We ignore what they represent, what place they have, and what part they play in a connected universe. We ignore quality, for as materialists, we do not admit a connected or intelligent universe in which everything has its definite role or function. Kanté actually said that quality was no positive entity the most positive entity being quantity. But is not the meaning of a thing as a whole? It's function and use. Well, yes and no. We're undecided about that. Yes and no. The part it plays in the life of man and in the life of the universe, its most positive aspect? I would say yes, but then I'm crazy to some people. And is not the fact that, quantitatively speaking, different chemical structure transmits such an infinite variety of qualities, the greatest mystery of all? I think it is. I think that it's incredible that such a varied, incredible universe can come out of the same substance, basically. Star stuff. It's just amazing. And it is probably the greatest mystery of all. The most positive aspect of a thing is the thing as a whole. We never really explain or understand a thing by the mere reduction of it to its elementary parts. You're not going to explain to me an earthworm by dissecting it to death. It is no longer an earthworm. It's just a bunch of parts now. And if it's dead, it's not doing what it was meant to do, while ignoring its patent qualities and uses and purposes when taken as a whole. And that is exactly what the dissection of an earthworm is... You ignore its patent qualities and uses and purposes when taken as a whole when you dissect it to find out what it is. All you know is what parts go up to make what it was. But you don't know what it is until you take the whole thing as a whole. Such a way of explaining a thing gives us a wrong sense of power, a conceit, a superficiality of standpoint, which seemed to me to lie at the very root of materialism. I think probably the very best example that I can come up with of this is the whole idea of communism, where soul, individuality, all of those things are simply taken out of the equation. You're a unit. And look what that led to and is still leading to. I remember my first contact with chemistry at school. Everything seemed to become amazingly simple. Everything was merely chemistry, merely different quantities and combinations of elementary particles. A living being was merely a combination of different quantities of atoms, of infinitely small bricks of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, nitrogen, and phosphorus, certainly in vast and inconceivable quantities, but still nothing but atoms. Even a person whom one loved was nothing but a prodigious quantity of atoms. Explanations seemed to be fascinatingly easy on this basis of quantities. Is not this the obsessing fascination of explaining the greater by the less, the root of all obsession? It seemed as if the secret of the universe had been handed over to me, particularly because at that time people in general seemed to be quite ignorant of chemistry. It was only when I began to ponder over the meaning of the periodic law of the elements the law of the octave, as the English chemist Newlands called it, whereby the same sort of elements repeat themselves at regular intervals, that I realized that something stood behind all these atoms and behind all chemistry. There is law, there is order, which determine their action, their properties, their position, their affinities and relations. Why is it that two molecules of hydrogen fall in love with one of oxygen so readily? Why is it? Why is it they have this affinity for one another? They like to make water. Behind these elementary particles stood another world, the world of law, order, form, and principle, that connected all these particles together and made all chemical changes and relationships possible. But it's understandable how anyone who has not yet begun to think can become intoxicated by the powers that science seems to put into his hands. It seems possible to explain everything, to know everything, to understand exactly why everything is what it is. And this first contact with science produces in some people an extraordinary contempt for and intolerance of anything like idealism. That is, of a world behind this visible world that explains this visible world. And that is exactly my point about Richard Dawkins, is he has this incredible contempt for anyone who would dare believe anything that he doesn't believe because he can prove everything, and you can prove nothing according to science, according to his rules. They cannot see that we cannot really know or understand or even explain anything simply through the method of science, and that all our explanations are nothing but descriptions of processes that remain a mystery. You can see that this will not do in the world of science. When science is God... This will not do. Pointing out its limitations will not do. Just the exact same way that pointing out God's limitations, that is, the religious people's God, pointing out those limitations will not do for them. You're a heathen, you're a pagan, you're an unbeliever, you're you are not a good person. And it's just the same thing in this other religion of science. I see them both pretty much just two religions at war with each other, and I think they're both... Silly.